podcast, The Leadership Forum, a conversation with leaders who serve the public good. My name is Trevor Brown, and I'm privileged to serve as Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University, where we aspire to fulfill a simple phrase that Senator John Glenn used to describe what we do, inspire citizenship and develop leadership. I also have the honor of serving as the host of this conversation series. So welcome to a thoughtful and reflective conversation about leadership. I'm joined today by Dr. Frederick Bertley. Dr. Bertley is a scientist, scholar, and evangelist for innovative thinking, particularly in STEM education. He is president and CEO of Columbus's Center of Science and Industry, otherwise known as COSI, which strives to engage, inspire, and transform lives and communities by being the best partner in science, technology, and industry learning. Prior to his role as COSI, Dr. Bertley was the Senior Vice President for Science and Education at the Franklin Institute, a premier science museum based in Philadelphia. After graduating from McGill University, where he studied physiology, mathematics, and the history of science, and earned a PhD in immunology, Dr. Bertley worked internationally in preventative medicine and basic vaccines in Haiti, the Sudan, and the Canadian Arctic. He continued this focus by joining a vaccine research group at the Harvard Medical School, focusing on the development of DNA vaccines for HIV and AIDS. And part of his continued interest in communicating science to a wide audience, Dr. Bertley is the host of the primetime television show QED with Dr. B in partnership with WOSU Public Media. Frederick, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining me for a conversation about leadership in the nonprofit sector. Dean Brown, it's an absolute honor to be on your show. Um, I do want to thank you for supporting COSI. As you know, um, we have the John Glenn Inspiration Award. It is a premier award for an incredible leader of the community. It's the first of its kind for the nation. You and your institution were instrumental in supporting us to launch that. So thank you very much. And it's an honor to be on your Leadership Forum podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for continuing to celebrate the legacy of John Glenn. We, we miss him dearly, but his life lives on through great organizations like ours and yours. So thanks for that. So to that end, let's talk a little bit about COSI. It's a nonprofit science museum. Tell us about the, the, the mission of COSI and the primary means by which you and the museum pursue that mission. Yeah, so, so the mission is, is simple, three powerful words, to engage, inspire, and transform lives and communities by being the best partner in science, technology, industry learning. And so we take that engage, inspire, transform seriously. And the reason why we do that in the milieu of science is we have another mantra at COSI, which is science is everywhere and science is for everyone. And if you don't think that's true, see if you can wake up tomorrow morning, dear audience, I'm challenging you, see if you can wake up tomorrow morning and get through the entire day without specifically being impacted through science and technology. It's, it's near impossible unless you're living off the grid and you have a different lifestyle. And so because we know science is everywhere and because we know science is for everyone, we want to be one of the many rich institutions regionally, you know, nationally, even internationally, that give the opportunity to any and everybody to be exposed to the wonders of science, get excited by it, and whether they become an astrophysicist or they're a bus driver, they have some vocabulary and appreciation for this really cool enterprise called science and its offspring engineering, and that'll hopefully lead to a better them and they'll contribute in a better way to society. So we really take engage, inspire, and transform literally 
and metaphorically. And we do that in partnership, which is why, again, I'm ecstatic to be on this um, podcast with you. We do a ton of work, as you know, with, with OSU and you're one of our signature partners, but we have other partners as well. And that allows us to, to have that impact that we try to have. Awesome. Well, well, we'll talk about all of the great themes you laid out that introduction there, but I want to immediately turn to you, the organizational leader. So as I mentioned in my intro, you're a trained scientist and, and a practicing scientist for, for a good while before you went into running a museum. What are the things that you learned from your scientific training and your research experience that you found have directly applied to your job as an organizational leader? That's a great question. And before I dive into that answer, I want to say I am a trained scientist. You read through in the intro kind of some of my pedigree, but I like to say I'm a trained scientist who saw the light <laughs> and came to the light side, which is for me, the wonders of science communication for a bigger world. And that's really what COSI, any science museum is about. It's about communicating science. And I mentioned getting people excited. As a scientist, what did I learn in terms of leadership? And that's a great question. And I didn't realize it till you know, several years into my leadership career. So before I got to COSI, as you mentioned, I was a senior vice president at another science museum. And year over year, I started to realize my training as a scientist, and I want to be clear here, scientists and science are not a group of facts, mm -hmm. but science is a process of being Socratic, if you will, asking a question about whatever it is, usually about the natural world, and then doing experiments, collecting data, small, medium, or large, to try to get you to understand that natural phenomenon. And so the science vehicle gets us closer and closer to the truth by doing experiments and then collecting the data and analyzing the data. Why do I say that? I say that that training has been so important and has helped me to be an effective leader because one of the things we are, and, and you know, the original doctor, my father would say, son, humans are not logical they're psychological. And that <laughs> psychology, the emotion, the spirit, all that stuff, when that weaves into your leadership, while emotions are important, don't get me wrong, obviously psychology is critical, but when that weaves into your leadership, a lot of times you're not being objective and you're not analyzing the leadership problem properly. And so by falling back on that kind of natural training, I say natural and that I've learned being a scientist over here, but right now it's innate in me, Falling back on that, hey, what's the problem? What's the question? Let's collect some data to address that question. And then let's analyze that data and make the best guess decision based on that data. In other words, this concept of data-driven, we hear it all the time, data-driven, that's actually really important because it allows you to navigate that sometimes murky web of leadership where people are looking at you and you know, you're trying to leave people behind you, or even when you're trying to follow people and you gotta, you know, because leading is part of following is part of leading. And so, so how do you move the needle forward? Well, instead of just falling back on kind of emotional, psychological tendencies that we often do, and then you throw this three-letter word ego into it and that muddies everything, when you can fall back on clarity through mm -hmm. data, through analysis through objectivity, you can often move mountains and get to the next in a really powerful way. And people will fall behind you as a leader because it's not the Frederick Bertley opinion or even the COSI opinion. It's an opinion based on data that's been anal analyzed and teased by all the people involved. And so yeah. that has been a fundamental anchor that I've learned that while I'm not the perfect leader and I always strive to better myself, that has been helpful in me having some success. 
so uh, thanks for opening the door on not the perfect leader and the message we want to get across to everyone is there is no perfect leader everybody has strengths and weaknesses and you clearly have many many strengths but i'm sure in again making that move from scientist to organizational leader seeing the light um, science communicator there were some deficits um, and i'm curious were there deficits rooted in you being a scientist that you had to overcome? So for example, you know, we, I'm, I'm right there with you. I celebrate the analytical process and the reliance on analytical objective data. But one of the risks that I always run is that I fall prey to paralysis by analysis. Oh, we need more information and we need, you know, the best kind of information. And somebody's like, no, 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 we need to make a decision. Um, what, what, what deficits have you had to overcome um, in, in your role as leader? Yeah, well, so, so I'll talk about a scientific deficit to, to your point. Um, while science is not a book of facts, it is a book of as close to the truth as we can get to, and we build on it and get closer and closer. One of the things I had to realize real quickly is as much as I like to be data-driven and do that analysis you talked about, is to avoid that paralysis by analysis is to understand that in the real world, meaning the world based on human bodies and psychology and emotions, you're not gonna get that precision to the eighth decimal place. Right. It's not going to happen in the workplace. And so but learning to balance and pull back and say, well, no, no, no. Yes, we know logically it can be this. Again, weaving in this understanding that while logic dictates this, humans are not logical. We, we have some logic aspects of it, but we are psychological. That allowed me to step back and dis not distance myself, but understand the power of being scientific and being analytical, but also knowing that there comes a, a almost subjective mm -hmm. decision or step you need to make in the process. So that's one of those kind of transitions from being a scientist to, you know, where's that data, you know, to, okay, wait a minute, it's a little fuzzy. Um, the other thing, though, that I had to get over, which was a lot harder for me, is while I'm a scientist, I've always been very... Um, um, in tune with the non-science part of the brain, if you will. Like, I, mm -hmm. I feel like you know, I wanted to be a writer. You know, I was, I was balancing in, in high school and college. Am I going to go into the writing side and go into the humanities? Because I love history. I love philosophy. I love writing. Or am I going to go to the science side? And I was conflicted. And I, that's why you talked about I studied the history of science. That was a way of right. packing in a little of that yep. stuff while I was doing my science degree. But layered with that is I'm a very emotive person. I get excited. My adrenaline goes quick, zero to 60. And you know that's just how I am. But I had to learn navigating this leadership space. Yeah. I had to learn to pull back what I call the, the and I wanna be clear, it's always important to be the authentic you, period, but especially as a leader. So I'm not trying to be someone I'm not, but I had to pull back that over exuberant, that over excited, the over sometimes emotional response to something and temper myself and catch myself because wait a minute, you know, I'm leading a whole lot of other people, I'm leading an institution, and I got to be able to balance how reactive and excited I can get, or upset on the other side of the curve, um, with, hey, you know, your leader, you know, just calm down, and keep, keep it moving, sir. <laughs> it's a simple well, way of saying it. I'm, I'm loving the enthusiasm and the excitement, it gets me excited and inspired. So let, let's keep going down that road. Um, and you you laid some of these breadcrumbs out in your your first response. I mean, you you are really a remarkable uh, communicator, and that's something that you're excited about. So I want to talk a little bit about how you make science sexy and inclusive, right? So we'll do this in two parts. First, what is your strategy for making a subject that many people in their grade school years were like, oh God, I want to avoid science. I want to stay away from this. It's it's hard, it's challenging, it'll reveal my inadequacies. 
how do you get people excited and how do you motivate people to engage COSI? So th that's a great question. And I have to say, anything that I'm good at, I pay homage to June Bertley and Leo Bertley, my friend. <laughs> anything that I'm not good at, I own it because I'm a knucklehead like the rest of us. <laughs> but um, so I say that because my parents were, were amazing educators. And so mm -hmm. I grew up in this micro environment of being scholarly, being erudite, and being an effective teacher and communicator. So that is just because of the environment. I mean, my brothers and sister, same way. We all love explaining stuff. We love connecting with people. Um, but, and you know this being an academic, the cardinal rule in successful education for impact is you got to meet the audience where they are, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're doing history and literature, you got to meet them where they're at. When you're talking about this thing called science, which a lot of people, unfortunately, in our society get turned off in, in late elementary school, middle school, it's a more terse, esoteric, weird topic. They feel alienated from it. Oh, I'm not a nerd. I did my last science class in grade eight. You know, it's a really weird topic. So you have to be that much more diligent and thoughtful about how can you meet that person where they are with this topic that they're pretty uncomfortable with how do you connect? How do you square that circle? How do you connect those dots? And so, so what I do, because as I just explained to you, science is everywhere for everyone. You know, the computers we have in our pocket that run our lives, that's all science and tech. There is a science or science and engineering something that resonates with all 7.8 billion people on the planet. You just need to think about what that is and how to approach them. And then you want to democratize the capacity for them to understand it. So you have to meet them with their vocabulary, mm -hmm. right? You have to meet them with their lexicon. You can't come with the highfalutin language that yeah. we, we PhDs in the hallowed halls of ivory tower like to talk about and 12 other people around the world understand it. And we think that makes us smarter. No, you got to speak the word, the gospel, the site, whatever you want in a vocabulary and an imagery and iconography that resonates with, with the individual. So I'll give you an example. The audience, I'm sure you hear this. I said to you, f of x squared is equal to log x base 10. People, you can be educated in undergrad, you can even have a grad degree if it's not a math or science, and you're like, f of x is equal to log x base 10. You run scared. You're upset. Oh my gosh, I hated math. I was never good in it, right? And so you're trying to teach this to kiddos. Well, you've lost the kiddos. Yet I can tell you, Dean Brown, and I've done this a million times. You can assemble four or five-year-olds, a hundred of them, put them in a room and say, hey, how many of y'all want a dollar from Dean Brown? The kids will be like, yeah, okay, Dean Brown, I'll take a dollar. Then you say, okay, how many of y'all want $10? Oh my God, Dean Brown says, then you say, I bet if I give you a hundred dollars, will you be excited? Now, Dean Brown, the whole room, all these hundred kids are losing their mind. They're excited to get your money. And then if you tell them a thousand dollars, they will lose their minds. They're four years old. They can be rich, poor, black, white. Didn't matter their demographic. They will be super excited. And they did it instantly. They instantly understand log X base 10. They understand the growth of magnitudes in base 10, but you shared it with them with money that resonates with anybody versus you know the growth of CO2 percentage over there, and you have these funny charts. So there's an example of a scientific, in this case, a mathematical construct that a lot of people struggle with, but everybody instantly understands it. Well, why? Because it was communicated in a way that the analogy was something that is meaningful to them, used the vocabulary that they could understand, 
and then they had you at hello and you had them at hello back. And so that's the key to getting people excited about science. I mean, you know this, we're born out of our mom's wombs, curious. We're scientists at birth, right? That's how we learn to walk, talk. It's all about trial and error, experiment, collect data. We're naturally excited about exploring the universe. And then, you know, unfortunately, much of the education system <laughs> weeds that out of us. And so, so that's my trick. Well, but I also want to call out one more, and I love that example, and I love your, your explanation, but I'm so glad you used your, your science voice in there for a moment. How much of it, and I'm curious, as, as you wade into this world, you were trained in the hallow halls of the ivory tower, where my guess is mm -hmm. you were conditioned to be sort of monotone, and it's just all about the data, and it goes back to your the difference between right, left side of your brain, et cetera. But now just listening to you, you not only bring great explanation and you talk to people where they are, but you don't put on some fake voice. You use your voice, your authentic voice, and it's an excited, exuberant voice. How much do you think the success you've had is a part two, just your passion for this, this issue, as opposed to just, I'm reading dryly from some you know, textbook? Look, I, I love that. And, and that's part of the recipe. In this case, it's the authentic me. But you know, you know this, I wear jeans and Chuck Taylors and I walk around sometimes in a blazer, sometimes in a t-shirt and a baseball cap throughout COSI. And people are like, you're the CEO. How come you're not always in a suit? Well, because you want to break the myth that to be a scientist or to think intelligently, whatever we want to find what that means, that you need to look a certain way. You need to, you know, be an old man with thick glasses and pocket protectors. That makes you a scientist. But you can't be a young woman who's dyed her hair orange, you know, or, or, or an African-American person with dreadlock. I mean... So again, meeting people where they are, when they see an image that they can connect to just on the visual, that's, you've broken down so many barriers there. If I walk around with a lab coat and pocket protectors and glasses, uh, even at COSI, I will put off some people and we're a science museum, right? So, so part of it is really, um, and again, you gotta be your authentic self, but part of it is if you can both verbally and physically connect with somebody, you're halfway there. They're, they're going to be open and receptive to what you have to say. Then you got to make sure you, you break it down in a way. As Denzel says on Philadelphia, break it down to me like I'm a three-year-old. And then that's the recipe for understanding. <laughs> well, I, I love throughout you've, you've just celebrated the diversity of people who can be excited and engaged by science. Talk, talk about how important it is uh, for you as a leader to make science education inclusive and are there specific steps beyond the ones you've just mentioned of how you're pursuing that goal? Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, there's just the practical ideology of why diversity and inclusion is important for everything. But let's, in this case, we're talking about science, right? So let's take the United States demographic, roughly 51, 52% female, 48, 49% male, right? And then when you look at the black and brown population, Pacific Islanders, throwing members of the LGBTQ community, et cetera, you got about a good 49, 50% of the population. So from a practical standpoint, since genius knows no color, genius <laughs> knows no socioeconomic status, knows no religion, there are geniuses in all of us at whatever, you know, whatever percentage. And so if half the country is women and we don't have programs that engage women, in the science, technology, engineering, math enterprise, we're losing 50% of the potential geniuses that are gonna come up with the next cancer cures, the next mission to the moon, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, on the black and brown population, if we're not providing ways for them to access these incredible things like science, technology, and math, 
as a nation, as a world, we're losing the potential genius here. So just, so forget about politics and is it right? Should we do the right thing or not? From a practical, from a selfish Darwinian survival perspective, we want to make sure the best and brightest and creative minds out there that are going to do all the wonderful things that may keep our planet healthy and make us go to next, we want to give them the best shot. So that's why you have to make sure science is for everyone and accessible to everyone. You know, then there's the betterment of society standpoint. When you understand science, whether you're a plasma physicist, whether you're an environmental PhD scientist, or you just learned a good amount of calculus and biology at the undergraduate level, that training allows you to be much more analytical and critical as you navigate your life. So you remember the subprime crisis of 2007, 2008 mm -hmm. that dragged down the world into this cyclic epicenter of just disaster and we've climbed out of it because of bailouts and things like that. If the average person had a general understanding of compounding interest, mm -hmm. right? Just general, I'm not talking about high PhD mathematics. They just understood interest and compounding interest and blue interest. If they just understood the basic math, they would know that that house that's $800,000, but I got a $30,000 a year salary and oh, this looks attractive at this 1% interest rate, but they're telling me it's gonna balloon to 12% or 20% in two or three years. If you just had a basic understanding, you'd be like, there's no way I can do this. But this illiteracy around it that many of us are, 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 are hit with on the science and math side puts, at a, puts us at a disadvantage to analyze a lot of basic stuff, whether it's should you take a vaccine to help get out of a pandemic, whether it's climate change is a real thing. Well, all these things where we're making decisions day and day, buying that mortgage or getting that mortgage, a basic understanding of how to be critical and analytical can help you go a long way. So there's so many, there's those two and other reasons why being inclusive in this concept of science education and science experience and science opportunity is critical. Um, what do we do, COSI? We have all kinds of programs. I mean, we believe that we want programming for you from the womb to the tomb and everything in between, we got something <laughs> for you. So we got programs for, you know, that we are, we're in underserved rural and urban settings. We got programs, we're in, you know, undergrad schools across the country. We got programs locally here in the center, in central Ohio and Columbus based region. We got programs in about 14 other states and we're slowly trying to get to all 50 states and we have programs in about five different countries. So we believe again, falling on the sword, science is everywhere and for everyone. So we're gonna make sure that everyone at best as possible has a chance to have that exposure. Let's turn, you mentioned that one of the pillars of your, your mission, your approach is partnership. Um, and, you know, COSI, I think all of us in the Columbus area think of it as a physical location, but you just described this amazing reach, um, and that can't be done just by the museum downtown. So how important are partnerships, and what are the sort of the prototypical types of partnerships that you, allow you to extend your reach? So thanks for setting it up. You know, we're building, we're right now in the epicenter of downtown Columbus, you know, beautiful peninsula, great location. We're, we're three football fields long to give you a size <laughs> of our building, 320,000 square feet. It's a great physical building, but we want to have an impact in the building. So if you come here, we want to make sure you have a great experience, but we also want to serve science, as I said, in concentric circles outside our building, whether that's in Central Ohio and beyond. And as a non-for-profit, we have limited capacity. 
right? We're not the size of Amazon. We're not the size of Google, you know, but we're very, you know, talking about 150 employees, you know, we're a smallish institution, you know, and uh, the bigger scale sets. So to have a real impact, we can't go it alone. So we take the concept of partnerships really, really seriously. And that has allowed us to have such a major impact. So we are in all, I'll give you an example. We are in all 88 counties in Ohio because mm -hmm. we partnered with the superintendents of all 611 districts. We partnered with the governor. We partnered with mayors from numerous cities throughout the, these counties. We partnered with county officials and of course, all kinds of other state legislators. That's allowed us to get in these communities and take the COSI brand and more importantly, the excitement around science to communities throughout the state and then beyond. But we've also partnered with Battelle. You mentioned Battelle in your, in your warm-up. We partner with Battelle. We partner with AEP. We partner with Nationwide. We partner with Huntington. We partner, of course, with OSU. We also partner with Capital Ohio, uh, uh, Ohio University, Autobahn, you know, Denison, Columbus State, et cetera. By partnering with all these in individual organizations, you can create a beautiful spectrum of myopic partnerships that are doing these specific singular things to slightly broader partnerships that are allowing you to have a a wider, cast a wider net and have a larger footprint and everything in between. And that has been the key to our success. And why have we been successful at it? We've been successful at it because we don't just partner for the sake of saying we partner. Every single partnership, Dean Brown, we look at us and the prospective partner and we say, where is this a synergistic opportunity for each of us to contribute something important? So we don't ever do 100% one-sided partnerships or 95, 5%. That's of no interest to us. Whether it's us just being, you know, I get calls every day. Dr. Me, I'd like to be your partner. And really it means, mm -hmm. how can we come to Cosign for free? How can we do this for free? Or vice versa. Hey, bank, Huntington, give me, you know, $500,000 because we're a nonprofit. Just, just help us out. No, there's always a quid pro quo in a meaningful way. And that's the key. When you bring your authentic self to the table and you have something to offer to institution X, and they too have something offered. It's never 50-50. It could be 55-45. It could be 60-40, 30-70. But when there's real give and take, that moves mountains. And that's how you have an indelible impact. And we've been fortunate in this great community to have all kinds of partners that allow us to, to, to um, cohabitate similar places and deliver on a promise in a concerted way. Thanks for both explaining its importance, some examples, and uh, sort of your the sort of philosophical approach. I'm curious, and this is again, a, a sort of leadership versus organization question. How much of the, this commitment to partnership and, and the development and maintenance of those partnerships is you, your personality, your personal connections, you being out there and engaged in the world and running 110 miles an hour versus how much of it is now structural and embedded in the life of the organization and their prophecies, et cetera. So you, you mentioned you got a lot of partners, there's no way you can personally manage all of them, but I'm guessing you were part of the genesis for a lot of these because you're an outward facing gregarious person. So, so talk a little bit of that balance between I, Frederick Bertley, I'm out there, I wanna make all these partners and how much of this is now embedded. When I walk out the door, this commitment to partnerships gonna continue. You know, that, that's a great question. And I appreciate you say, you know, I may have driven the genesis of it, by virtue of my personality, what have you, but I, I can't take credit. I, I give credit to this great community. Partnerships work all over the world, by the way. But in this case, I give credit to this great community, not being from Columbus, but now being of Columbus. When I first came to be recruited for this job at COSA, I learned of this thing called the Columbus Partnership and the Columbus mm -hmm. Way. 
And you know, you hear about it and you're drinking, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh yeah, all these organizations get together and their leaders, you know, get together to for the greater good of the city. I'm like, I've I've been in Philly, I've been in New York, I've been in Boston, I've never seen that happen. And then when I came for the job interview, the search committee that made the decision for the next CEO of COSI had eight members of COSI's board and nine members that were non-COSI board. Mm-hmm. And I learned that, wow, they're serious about partnerships in that they want the community to have a majority say on who the next CEO is. That's, I've, that's never happened in any city I've lived in. You know, yeah. the institution is always the board of trustees and they hire a firm and they make the decision. And when I saw that here in Columbus, I was like, they're serious about it. Then I learned more about the Columbus Way and the partnership. And so it is definitely in the Central Ohio DNA to want to partner for a greater good for all of us. That's one. Two, that's what excited me about the opportunity. So it resonated, back to your point, it resonated with my DNA in terms of I'm a community-centric person. I like to build relationships. I love partnering. So that was a net win right there. And then I got here. And then you're leading and you want your institution to understand the the excitement around partnerships and the joyous outcomes that can come when you have a partnership mentality. And so that was a learning curve. But the best thing here, Dean Brown, is that when you can lead by example and show them these outcomes by doing X, in this case, the power of partnerships, the team bought in. So when I came here, one of the big things we had was the eclipse. Remember mm-hmm. that big eclipse? And so I asked the team, hey, you know, what are we doing for the eclipse? Now I'm a new guy at COSI. I'm a month in. I'm about 12, 15 years younger than my predecessor. I look completely different than my predecessor. And I'm trying to win the team of COSI onto my side as the new CEO. And uh, so I said, hey, what do we do for the Eclipse? And they rattled off all these things and they're all internal. All these things we're doing inside COSI. So I said, this is great. But I tell you what, the Eclipse is outside the building. I want you to come up with all kinds of things, all kinds of partnerships, all kinds of relationships with the community that we are taking the Eclipse to them. And they looked at me funny, like, what do you mean? I gave some examples. And then to their credit, three months later, they came back. And the stuff that was happening at COSI was minuscule compared to what we did for the Eclipse. We were in every one of the 23 library branches of Columbus Library, right? We were in eight metro parks. We were at Easton. We were in bars and pubs across the city, all because our team created partnerships with these individuals to take science around the Eclipse to them, what we like to say, where you live, learn, and lounge. And when they saw the success, when they saw the headlines of the media the next day, COSI smashed the part, smashed the eclipse, and everybody got to see COSI, COSI, the team now started to drink that Kool-Aid of how powerful partnerships are. So one, you know, City of Columbus and Columbus Partnership, Columbus Way. Two, resonated with me. Three, do some examples, have some wins with the team to see the power of partnerships and how it manifests itself. And then to your last point, it can't be Frederick Bertley. So now you have to hire strategic people who get that hopefully coming in, or you can educate that if they're already in, and then they run like the wind. And I've been fortunate to have some incredible team members. um, And in particular, I won't say it because I don't want to shout out one name on the podcast, but in particular, (laughs) one of my executives who really, you know, understands the power of partnerships and frankly leads it for the institution, he and myself have built this kind of capacity within the institution. And people love outcomes. People love positive outcomes. People love when you can show that you move the needle. And we've shown that partnerships are instrumental um, to achieving that. So one, one last question before we close, and it's a, it's a personal one. I can only imagine the last couple of years in any organization were challenging. You run a residential museum or an in-person museum. I'm sure COVID had plenty of impacts. 
Um, and in any period, it's hard to run an organization, but this was a particularly challenging period. How have you personally stayed so positive, so upbeat, so enthusiastic uh, that drives the community, it drives your team, it stimulates these partnerships? How, what's the secret sauce? So, you know, that's a really complex question. And what's good for me, you're not catching me off guard because I've had some of this discussion over the last six, eight months with, with colleagues, especially in the nonprofit space. Um, and, and it really speaks to one of the things that I'm now learning as I'm growing and developing as a leader is cardinal to being an effective leader, is you have to be able to take it on the chin, you know, but show strength, resolve, courage, and vulnerability. It's not about trying to be Superman. You gotta also show that you're again being your authentic self. I'm a very you gotta be vulnerable, and when you can do that with the sincerest of intentions, the folks who you're leading, whether it's individuals or an institution, will rally behind you. And I say that to say, don't get me wrong. When you know when two, when 2020 rolled out in January and February, and we're getting into this thing called the global pandemic. It was not easy. You teed that up in your intro remarks. We're a non-for-profit institution. We depend on foot traffic, people buying tickets to come to COSI. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, the lion's share of our revenue is in peril. If we don't have revenue, we can't keep the lights on. We can't keep staff. And like many other institutions, I had to go through massive staff reductions. To this day, it's almost three years later, I still... Yep. feel bad about it in particular for the team members that I had to let go. These are men and women who gave five, 10, in some cases, 20, 30 years to COSI, but you know, they can't pay people with air balls and oxygen squares. And so we had to make these tough decisions. So I want to be clear. There were times where it was really tough and really challenging and I had to do soul searching, etc. But at the same time, and I tell this to the team all the time, it doesn't say Bertley on the outside of the building. It says COSI. And part of this is, is, you know, type A personality. I said, I'm not going to be that person that this great institution born in Central Ohio that people love, I'm not going to be the person onto which, under which it's going to fail. That's not going to happen. So went through the staff reduction, went through these tough times, and then challenged the rest of the team to say, hey, we believe science is everywhere. We believe science is everyone. So if our building is closed, so what? there's a way for us to still be relevant and let's figure out what that is. Then let's figure out how to monetize it so we can have a lifeline. And that's what we did, challenge the team and to their credit, the team rose to the occasion and we ideated ourselves out of this Dean Brown. We came up with all these incredible concepts that we were flirting with pre-pandemic, but the pandemic forced us to activate on and created a few other ones. And that allowed us to start climbing out, doing decently, doing good, and then doing really, really well. And so when you can lead authentically, show your vulnerability, go through those pain points, but at the same time, grab yourself by the bootstraps and motivate and get people excited around what we could do, and then you achieve some things, that is what allows me to come and smile in front of you today and join this podcast with a very pleasant, optimistic approach because you know it's, it's again, always growing as a leader, not the perfect leader, but with a great team here at COSI, we've been able to wait to lead our way out of this. And, and that's, you know, that's why I keep a smile on my face and keep a pep in my step.
Well, um, you wouldn't give yourself credit, but I will. Um, thank you for a, a really inspiring and informative of conversation, Dr. Bertley. And, and thank you fundamentally for what you've done for your team, for, for the city of Columbus and the central Ohio community. And as we've learned today, uh, all of the state and, and perhaps uh, good parts of the, the, the nation and the world. It is, it is much appreciated. You demonstrate that authentic leadership and it's much appreciated. Well, um, likewise, thank you, Dean Brown, for your great leadership at the Glenn College. Thank you for having this fantastic leadership forum and having myself and COSI to share the little things we may have learned along the way, but it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And it, it really is a testimony of this great Columbus community. So thank you for, for your support of us.